Last Sunday, Heather and I flew under the radar. I think it's the first time I've ever been in Brazil on Sunday and did not preach. And we did that on purpose. We wanted to stay hidden uh, for a couple of days, and we did. But that Sunday night, rather than let anybody know I was in town, I decided to go to the Brazilian church on the island of San Luis where Dane Caldwell was preaching and listened to Dane preach in Portuguese. And let me just say to you, church, uh, he represents you well. He serves our mission organization well. And these two are, are fine servants. So just know uh, that, uh, that they're doing a great job for the Lord in the midst of, of, uh, of the Quilombolas of Brazil. Dane and Cheryl, we're glad to have you all back, man. Thank you for your service. Ruth chapter number 2 is where we are today. So Ruth... Uh, chapter 2 will begin in verse number 14. Here's what I have learned about Ruth since undertaking the assignment of preaching through it several weeks ago. Uh, Ruth is a unique book for several reasons, but it really does not lend itself to paragraph by paragraph exposition because when you back up and look at Ruth as a whole, it really is more suited to exposition as if we viewed it as a play. And rather than paragraph by paragraph, look at it as acts. So there are acts uh, in a play and then there are scenes within acts. So I think when we do that, it, it helps us understand uh, Ruth and it certainly helps us um, understand what the Lord is teaching us in this unique book. For example, act number one is basically chapter number one which records the sojourn of this family in Moab and also their return to Bethlehem. Uh, Acts chapter, or, or excuse me, Ruth chapter number two begins act number two and there are several scenes in it. Today we're going to look at two scenes. Verses 14 through 17 show us basically Ruth's first day of work in the field of Boaz. And then verses 17 or 18 really through the end of that chapter is another scene within act, within act number 2 which takes us from the field of Boaz to the humble abode of these two widows, Ruth and Naomi, back in Bethlehem. And once you see those major movements and you identify the major characters, then you're well on your way to putting together the spiritual principles which the Lord is teaching us through this book. So let's look at it like that today as if Ruth is a play being acted out before us on a stage. Verse number 14 of chapter 2 says this, At mealtime Boaz said to her, that is Ruth, Come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he served her roasted grain, and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. And you shall purposefully pull out for her some grain from the bundles, and leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And She also 
took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. And her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today? And where did you work? May he who took notice of you be blessed. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of Yahweh who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Again, Naomi said to her, The man is our relative. He is one of our closest relatives. Then Ruth the Moabitess said, Furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids, so that others do not fall upon you in another field. So she, that is Ruth, stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Well, we can see within these two scenes there are three principal characters or three main players. And of course, one of them is Boaz, the other is Ruth, and then in scene two, Naomi comes to the stage. So let's look at this movement of this play kind of through the eyes of each one of these and see what each one of these teach us about, uh, 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 about the spiritual principles embedded within this passage. So here's what I want to speak to you about today. What every believer needs. Because if we kind of look at this, and, and really I'm, I'm not into allegory, But if we back up and look at these three players, we can see that each one of them has a very specific role and each one of them kind of teaches us something that lands squarely upon our plate today. If you'll look at Boaz and kind of see that he's giving us a forepicture or a taste of what Christ is going to ultimately do for his people. And then, of course, Ruth, of course, is uh, giving us a foretaste of you and I as the people of God coming unto him, and then Naomi supplies another piece of this picture. So as I look at this and we consider what every believer needs, we can almost say, no, this is not just limited to believers. This is what every person needs. So what is it? And, you know, it's good for us to let the Bible tell us what we need because a lot of times what we think we need really isn't a need. Most of the time, we confuse our needs with our wants. But what do you, as an emerging follower of Christ, what do you need in order to fulfill the function that Christ has for you in this life? What is it that is our most pressing necessity and need? What every believer needs. Number one, I think Boaz teaches us that every believer needs to stay close to the Master. Now, look what Boaz said here. This is cool. In verse number 14, at mealtime, so here it is lunchtime. She'd been working all morning, and Boaz said to her, Come here. Now, you understand it would have been no use in saying, Come here, if she wasn't over there. So she was a distance from him. She was maintaining her social distance. She was recognizing cultural barriers and all of those things. And here Boaz says to her, Come here, you who were once far off. 
You who were once separated from Christ, you who were once strangers and foreigners separated from the commonwealth of Israel have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, what every believer needs more than anything else, what every person needs more than anything else is to live in the presence of the Master. Hey, can I ask you a question? What is more important to you than living in the presence of Christ? I'll never forget the day we told the Bible story in a Quilombola village about the great catch of fish and how those men pulled their boat up on the shore, walked away and left two boat loads of fish flopping on the beach. And the Bible says they left everything, got out of their boats, left everything and followed Christ. And I'll never forget one of our Quilombola converts chimed in at that time. He said, you know what that teaches me, Pastor Richie? I said, please tell me. He said, it tells me that the most valuable thing in my life is not what I have. He was a fisherman. It's not my boat. It's not my catch. It's not my house. The most valuable thing in my life is living in the presence of this man named Jesus Christ. And that's what we see here. She was way over there. And Boaz says, come over here. So he brought her near. Man, isn't that a picture of what Christ does for us? Now check this out. Every believer needs to stay close to the Master. Let's let Boaz for a little while just represent for us what Christ has done for us and who Christ is. Every believer needs to stay close to the Master. And how do we do that? How do you stay close to Him is the pressing question. Well, number one, notice this. He calls who He wants. Have you ever thought about it? He calls who He wants into His presence. Now, I'm sure that day in that field, a rather large field, a lot of workers, probably more than one gleaner was there, but Boaz calls Ruth. Now, he didn't call everybody. He called Ruth. You see, here's what I know about God. He's God. And it's His prerogative to do whatever He wants, with whomever He wants, however He wants. Am I right? He's God. So here he looks out in the field and he calls Ruth into his presence. Can I say this idea of a call biblically is huge? It means something? As a matter of fact, it's so important until it's a common designation for believers throughout the New Testament. I mean, it probably hits high watermark in uh, uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse number 28. For we know that God causes all things to work for the good for those who love the Lord and who are what? The called, literally. So hey, if you have been brought near, it's not because one day you just woke up and had a good idea that you think you want to get religious and live in the presence of God. No, we don't rush into His presence. You come into His presence by invitation only. And He calls who He wants into His presence. Hey, if you're living in His presence today, it's because you have been called and you are the called. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has called you from the domain of darkness into His marvelous kingdom of light. Thank God we have been called of God. Son, when you're called of Him, it makes a difference, huh? When you're called... What Ruth do? She just say, "No, nah, I don't think so. I think she's gonna stay out here in the field and push through on my own." 
No, when you get that gracious invitation to come into the presence of the King of Kings, let me tell you what you do. You drop everything you do and, and you enter into His presence. That's what you do. And that's what she did. Called. He calls whom He wants. And He looked out in that field that day and He called Ruth into His presence. Folk ask me all the time, Brother Richie, how is it? How is it that I was raised in, in, in a household with four or five brothers and every one of them have turned aside. They're all God-haters, basically. I'm the only one who follows Christ. How is it? And i tell you how it is. It's because God called you. Now, I'm not saying He's not going to call them. Time isn't over with yet. But here's what I know. You don't live in His presence. and You don't do what believers do unless you've been called. Are you following me? So notice what the implications of this call are as we walk on through this scene. He calls whom He wants to stay close to Him. That is the call. Do you understand that our call is to live in the presence of Christ? For the chief end of man is to live in His presence, to enjoy His presence and glorify Him forever. More than anything else, that's what He calls us to be and do. To simply live in His presence. Check out what it means when He calls you into His presence. First thing He did for Ruth is this. He supplies her with food. Notice what the Scripture says. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here that you may eat of the bread. So he supplies her with food. Now check this out. Here it is, mealtime. Dr. John Wilson has been trying to say for us for the past five or ten years, huh? The most underused opportunity that we have on our plate today to make an impact for Christ is mealtime. We always say we don't have enough time to do this, do that, do that. But we, have you ever noticed every one of us have time to eat every day, huh? I mean, eating is just a habit I established years ago and I hadn't been able to break it. I, I just, I'm going to stop and eat. That's all there is to it. But you know, in this culture, uh, mealtime was more than just taking on board sustenance in order to be able to complete my, have energy to complete my task. Mealtime was more intimate. It was time when you sat down with people. And here Boaz just confirms what Dr. John's been telling us for years. Mealtime is the time to sit down with people and get to know them. So look what he did at mealtime. He calls her into his presence. He sets her down and he supplies her with food. Now, does that sound familiar to you? Do you know what Christ does when he calls you into his presence? The very same thing. First thing he does is supplies you with food. He don't only supply you with food, He gives you an appetite. Have you ever noticed that when you got saved, there were some things that changed in your life? Used to, you didn't give two cents, didn't give a flip about God's Word. And now all of a sudden, you have a hunger for it. You have an appetite for it. You want to consume it because God's Word is our sustenance. It's our food. Here's what Peter says, As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. Have you mamas ever noticed that when you have a newborn, you don't have to teach it to like milk? They just come pre-programmed that way, don't they? And it's the same way with believers. When you're called into His presence and your life has been changed by living in His presence, you immediately have an appetite for the Word. And you begin to suck up the milk of His Word. But here's what's cool. 
as you grow, you don't... I mean, it'd be funny to see old Jerry Newman. Where's Jerry Newman? It'd be funny to see Jerry sucking a bottle today, wouldn't it? <laughs> you ever notice that? I mean, something be wrong. If, if Brian was over there sucking a bottle while I'm preaching, we'd all say, man, what's, what's going on there? But here's the reality. Too many believers that claim to have been saved for 20 and 30 years are still sucking on a bottle. See, when you grow, after you've had the milk, you move from milk to bread. And here's what Jesus said, For man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's our bread. But guess what? We don't stay on bread. We don't just eat a, 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 a diet of bread either. The writer of Hebrews said, But solid food. Now we're moving up to prime rib. Now we're getting a T-bone. But solid food is for the mature. Those who have had their senses trained to discern between good and evil by means of use. Means of use of what? God's Word. We don't just eat it. We put it into practice. And here he is, Boaz. The first thing he does when he calls this girl into his presence is he supplies her with food. And Friend, that's what Christ does for us. And I want to tell you, when we come together on Sunday morning, we ought to have a feast of God's Word. That's what it's about. Hey, if we can't leave here filled, having been fed God's Word, then something's wrong because that's what He gives us when He calls us into His presence. Now watch me. God's Word is enough. Do you hear me? It's enough. It satisfies and my concern today is so many churches are trying to give something else in place of God's Word, but the only thing that's going to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified is the Word of His grace. That's what it is. Check it out. Notice what else He did. Not only does He supply her with food, but He seats her with His people. Look at what the Scripture says in verse number 14. He said, Come here that you may eat bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. Here it is. So she sat beside the reapers. You know what else a call means? <laughs> if you've been called, then you've been supplied with food because He supplies you with food. That means we love God's Word. We consume it. But not only does He supply us with food, but He sits us with His people. Isn't that cool? Have you ever noticed that your crowd changed once you were called? Huh? I mean, it doesn't mean that we break all our relationship with the old crowd because that's our, that's our evangelistic opportunity, right? But son, I want to tell you, your people is no longer the barroom bunch. It's not. <laughs> Look around right in here today. Like it or not, warts and all, we are your people by virtue of your call. Huh? Am I right? And I want to tell you that's one of the biggest misunderstandings today. Folk think you can be called. Folk think you can be born again. They think you can be transformed. They think they're on their way to heaven when they die. And they have nothing to do with the people of God. Friends, something's wrong with that. That's not biblical at all. But look, we're not perfect, but we're still yours. Huh? I mean, that's just it. And my goodness, would to God that we would understand that salvation is not a call in isolation. It's a call to be part of a community and to come and sit with God's people and not sit 
just because we have to, but because we want to. You know, that switch takes place. Has that switch ever taken place in your life where church is not something you have to do, but it's something you want to do? And there's nowhere else you'd rather be on Sunday morning than sitting at the table consuming God's Word with the people of God. So what do we do when we sit together? Another good question. I think this text bears that out for us. What do we do when we sit with God's people? Well, together we learn of the Master. Now, let me show you where I get this. Check out what, what, what Ruth said in verse number 19. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man with whom I work today is Boaz. Now here's what's interesting. Nowhere in these acts or in these scenes does Boaz ever officially introduce himself to Ruth and say, Hello Ruth, Moabitess maiden. My name is Boaz. So she didn't even probably know his name. But do you know where she learned his name? And do you know where she learned about him? Because she was working in his field with his people and his people naturally talk about their good master. You see, that's what evangelism is. When we spread out here today, we're going to go out in the field and this week we're going to talk about how good our master is. That's how we learn. By the way, that's how we learn from one another. As a matter of fact, let me show you this. Listen to just just listen to this text in Ephesians chapter. Ah, where is it? Ephesians chapter number three, I believe. Check this out. Ephesians. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's not Ephesians. Let me find it. Galatians, Ephesians. Here we go. Ephesians chapter number three. Listen to what it is that Paul said in verse number seventeen. Here's Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church. So that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend, here's the most important phrase in these verses, with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, son, that's a mouthful. But notice how Paul says you learn that stuff. Notice how you know the unknowable and comprehend the incomprehensible about our wonderful and glorious master. Paul said, let me tell you how you do it. You get on your bass boat on Sunday morning. And you just worship him out there in the river where nobody else is around you who can distract you. Is that what Paul said? No, that's not what he said at all. How do you know the unknowable and comprehend the incomprehensible. Paul said, I'll tell you what y'all do. Y'all just get all holy and start chanting Gregorian chants. And y'all go home and sit in, an, in, a, in a theological ivory tower somewhere and it's all going to come to you. No, that's not what he said. Here's how Paul said you know the unknowable and comprehend the incomprehensible. It's with all the saints. You know how we learn of our wonderful master? Right here from one another. This is what I so love about the body. Man, I learn things. I see aspects of God's eternal character and nature that I would have never seen if I didn't know you. And you. And you. That's how we do it. I can see God working in your life. I can see how His nature 
flows through your personality. So we learn of our master when we are seated with his people. Hey, do you get the idea that church is just a little bit more important sometimes than we think it is? So when we're seated with his people, what do we do? Well, we learn together. But when we're seated with God's people, we also labor together. Notice what the Bible says. And man, I love this about, about Ruth. Here she, she eats in verse number 14. And then verse number 15, look what she did. She rose again to glean. You know why she probably did that? Because here's what Ruth knew to do. This was cross-cultural ministry for her. This was not her people. She didn't know anything that was going on. So she did exactly what I teach rookie missionaries to do. When you get there, you observe very well these indigenous people. And you don't do anything that you don't first see them do. And, and you do what you see them do. That's just what you do. That's how you not get into trouble culturally. So you know what it is that Ruth probably rose up to glean? Because everybody else did. Everybody else did. See, we labor together. Here's, here's what I know about, about churches and, and about dynamics within a church. You get a church that's filled with the servants of God and there'll never be a shortage or there'll never be a lack. There'll never be something that's uncovered because everybody seems to catch that spirit of servanthood and everything's taken care of. But man, when you go to a church where folk are begging for somebody to do this, somebody to do that, ain't nobody sitting together. And if you don't sit together, you don't labor together. But here they are getting up and getting back out there. And you know that's exactly what we do at Grace Church, is it not? Hey, we learn together and we labor together. Check out. I've got to hurry if I'm going to get through these two scenes. Number, number next, not only does he seat her with his people, but you know what else he does? Look in verse number 14. The Bible says, so, so she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain. He serves her personally. You know what Christ does when He calls you into His presence? He supplies you with food. He seats you with His people. And He serves you personally. Have you ever thought about that? How Christ serves His church? He gave us a great picture of it in John chapter 13 when He washed the disciples' feet, did He not? Paul tells us in this same book of Ephesians that we just read from that here's what He does. He washes us with the water of the Word so that one day He's going to have presented to Himself a church in all of her glory without spot or blemish. So here we've got the Master serving the servants. My goodness. Check out. i got to keep rolling or we're going to get bogged down here. Not only does He serve her personally, but He satisfies her and she has leftovers. Have you ever noticed that? Check out in verse number 14. He served her roasted grain. She ate and was satisfied and had some left over. Had some left over. Now, why is it important that she had some left over? Because did you notice what she did when she got back to Bethlehem? She took out what she had left over and she gave it to whom? She gave it to her mother-in-law and now her mother-in-law has something to eat. And you know that's exactly what the intentions of Christ is or are for His people today. It's for you to come and to be seated at the table 
supply you with food to give you enough to fill you up to the top and then have some left over. So here Ruth was. It's probably the first doggy bag ever in history. Huh? I, I mean, Heather's, Heather's great at that. We go out somewhere to eat and we just have scraps left on the plate. We got bird dogs, you know that. So she says, can I have a doggy bag to go? I just need to take this with me. Sometimes it's embarrassing. Other times I like it because I end up eating what the dog don't. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Depends on where we went out to eat. But anyway, here Ruth is. She has a doggy bag. She takes a doggy bag home to her mother-in-law. Now watch me. Here's where we miss it so many times. Do you know that Christ has not called you to scrape the bottom of the barrel of your spiritual life this week and trying to minister to others? doesn't work that way. It's hard for you to maintain your own spiritual vitality if your tank is half full or half empty. So you know what He wants to do on Sunday? He wants to fill you up to the point that you have some left over. And you know what you do with the leftovers? The leftovers, you take them home. That's, that's your doggy bag. You take that doggy bag out of here, and wherever you go this week, you are giving folk the sustenance of the leftovers. You see, here's how we minister. We minister out of the overflow of what Christ has done in our life. That's why the Bible talks about Him giving us abundant life, not just a little bit. He fills us up to the point that we're overflowing. We can't contain it all. I had a friend who was a dairy farmer years ago and he had a lot of folk working with him. That was back in the days when milking was still done by hand. You know what I mean? And this is what he said. He said, I can tell which one of my workers are carrying the most milk by how wet their shoes are. Huh? Your shoes ought to be wet when you leave here because you've been filled up to the point that you're overflowing and you can't watch me. You will not do effective ministry this week. You will impact no one with anything eternally significant if you're not overflowing, taking a doggy bag when you leave. Because that's your basis for ministry. The rest is just for your consumption. But it's the overflow that you serve others and minister to others from. Check it out. He calls who He wants. We see the implications of that call in verse number 14. But in verse number 15, not only does He call who He wants, but the Bible tells us He controls the circumstances of our work. Look at verse number 15. Here's what He said. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not insult her. You shall also purposefully pull out for her some grain from the bundles, and leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. Here's what he did. You know what he did? He guaranteed her fruitfulness as a laborer in his field. Now, does Christ do that for us? Oh, I guarantee you He does. I guarantee you He does. If you go out this week and you minister out of the overflow, your shoes are wet from, from what's splashing out of your bucket, and you minister God's Word, I promise you, you're going to be fruitful. The only way you can be fruitless this week is if you're empty and you have nothing to share. But He guarantees that your work will be fruitful. Check out what He said to those workers. He said, let her glean even among the sheaves. Now here, here's the thing. He had reapers in that field that was collecting His stuff. 
But these gleaners who were destitute widows, all they could pick up was what the reapers had dropped on the ground. But Boaz said, nope, you take some out of the bundles, the good stuff, and you, without letting her know it, you just drop it on the ground. And she was able to pick up more wheat than she should have been able to. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us she picked up an ephah. Now, what in the world is an ephah? Well, scholarship is divided on it, but here's what we know. We know from the book of Ezekiel that an ephah is one-tenth of an omer. <laughs> that clears it right up, don't it? <laughs> All right, I'm glad y'all got it. Well, here's what, a, here's what an omer is. <laughs> an omer is the weight that one donkey can carry all day long. So how much do you think a donkey can carry all day long? What does your donkey carry in a day? Wait, y'all don't have donkeys? <laughs> We're getting muddier as we go, aren't we? Man, I, I don't know, but whatever a donkey could carry, this was one-tenth of it. So she, <laughs> she was... Now look, we got to have an experiment. Somebody bring a dang donkey next week, all right? <laughs> We're going to load him up until he sits down. And we'll say, now that is an omer. <laughs> and then we're going to divide it by ten and figure out what an ephah was. What do you think? I mean, you know, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> yeah, he guaranteed, he controlled the circumstances of her work. And you know, that's what he does. <laughs> because he is in control. I've got to run. You, you get this? Hey. It's so good to preach in English for a while. I'm just losing myself here. Woo! Check it out. Every believer needs to stay close to the master. Number two, and we're done. Every believer needs the counsel of a mentor. Say, you could even say a wise mentor. Because you see, here, here Boaz represents for us the master. Ruth represents for us a brand new emerging believer... But Naomi is the seasoned veteran, right? So here's, what, here's what's going on. Naomi helps Ruth understand what's going on in her world. Check out what she did. And how could she be, number one, let's focus in on Naomi for a little bit. How could Naomi be a mentor? Hey, because it's my goal that every person in, involved in Grace Church is mentoring somebody. It's just the way it works. That's discipleship. Life on life. Somebody who is mature. Somebody who's walked with Christ and lived in the presence of the Master for a significant period of time. Helping those who are just now coming due to His call into His presence. So check out. Here's what Naomi did as a mentor. Number one, she knows it was beyond coincidence. What was beyond coincidence? What Ruth had gleaned that day. Check out what she says here in verse number 19. After she gave... Oh, and by the way, it's significant here that Naomi doesn't say a thing until after she has eaten. Do you see that? She's silent until Ruth takes out her doggy bag and gives it to her. Can I say to you, it's hard to be spiritual if you're hungry? It just is. And the devil will attack you when you're hungry and when you're tired and you'll end up being spiritually hangry all the time. You know anybody like that? Folk that claim to be walking with Christ and believers and they just are, 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 are grouchy, bitter people? Well, it's probably because they're hungry. 
they hadn't sat at the table and consumed God's Word in so long until they've got spiritual diabetes and are spiritually anemic. So here, here Naomi doesn't say a thing till after she's been fed. Do you know why so many folk never say anything about Christ? Let me tell you why. Because they're empty. They're empty. But man, when you come to the table and He fills you up and you take a doggy bag out, you talk about that with somebody. You share that with somebody. So Naomi, she doesn't say a thing until after she's eaten. And then after she's eaten, look what she says in verse number 19. Her mother-in-law then said to her, and by the way, this is not just a question more than it is an exclamation. It's like she said, My goodness, where in the world did you work today? Because she knows that you don't glean an ephah of, 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 of oats or barley in one day. That's way too much. So she knew this wasn't a coincidence. Notice what else she knew. Not only does she know it wasn't a coincidence, but she knows that Yahweh is in control. Why do I know that? Because look what she said. She commended this person with whom she worked to Yahweh. Now why would you do that if you don't know that Yahweh is the one who's in control? This isn't coincidence. This isn't happenstance. I'm commending him to Yahweh God that Yahweh bless his socks off for this. And then now what she did, look what she said. So she told her mother-in-law, Oh no, first she said, May he, he, he who took notice of you be blessed. An anonymous blessing. She don't even know his name yet. And she's asking that Yahweh bless him. And then look in, in verse number 20. She says again, May he be blessed of Yahweh who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. Now let's do a little excursus here. We, man, we, we ain't taken an excursus in a long time. You've been missing excursions, haven't you? Huh? So let's take an excursus. Oh, what does it mean to be blessed? What does this word in Hebrew, Barak, what does it mean? And by the way, we throw that word around so flippantly. How are you doing today, brother? Well, I'm blessed. <laughs> well, what does that mean? And here's something else I notice about testimonies. When sometimes folk give testimonies, they name off the blessings of God that have nothing to do with spirituality, but a fortunate lost man could have them. And our blessings from God are distinct. They only flow to those who have been called. Paul says, For you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to be blessed? I mean, it comes out the first time in Genesis chapter number 1 when God blessed Adam and Eve. Do you know that by nature God is a blessing God? He is. He's a God who blesses people. That's what He wants to do. That stands in contradistinction to the gods of their day, to the gods of the Quilombolas in Brazil. They don't bless, they curse people. And they hex people. But Yahweh is a God of blessing and He wants to bless us. The only question is, are you blessable? Or would it compromise His nature to bless you? Somebody just needs, bless you. <laughs> What does it mean to be blessed? Here's what it means at, at, at its most primal level. When God blesses you or when God blesses me, here's what it means. It means that now you can do exceedingly abundantly more having been supernaturally blessed by God than you can do naturally on your own. Huh? So when God blesses you, 
You're living in that God zone, in that supernatural area. Hey, I left what I can produce 20 years ago. It's way back there. I'm standing out here now on grace and the blessings of God. That's what it means to be blessed of God. And man, you can't see that unless you're living way beyond your own limits. Huh? Here's a problem, I think, today. Most churches can't attribute anything that's happening while they're seated at the table that cannot be explained by their own ingenuity or by their own resources. Are you following me? But son, when you put yourself out there and God either blesses or you fall on your face, man, that's when you see God supernaturally respond and bless you and you can do more after being blessed than you could ever do in your own natural ability. You know how I know that God's blessed me? Son, I know what I can do. I know who I am apart from Christ. And I know that God's allowed me to be involved in things and see things and experience things, be a part of things. But a little John Deere driving, redneck, Copenhagen spitting farm boy from South Mississippi could ever say, look what I did. Huh? That's the blessing of God. And it's not because any other reason than the fact that God called me one day. And God doesn't call you that He doesn't bless you to be more, do more, produce more than you could ever do in your own natural ability. So here Ruth, I mean Naomi says, Oh God, bless him. She's praying to the God whom she knows is in control. Isn't it amazing? She was bitter. She changed her name to Mara. But she hasn't given up on God. Check this out. Notice what else. She's shocked at Yahweh's kindness. She's shocked. Look, look, look what she said. She said, Blessed be the Lord who has not withdrawn. Here's our word, kindness. It's that watershed word in the Old Testament. It's hesed. It's so rich theologically that there's no one English word that can translate it. Sometimes it's translated kindness. Sometimes loving compassion. My favorite is unfailing love. It's God's love that can't fail. So here's why she's shocked. Naomi doesn't have any problem at all. Listen to me. Even in her backslidden, bitter condition, she has no problem at all believing that God's good and God will bless others. But Naomi has serious problems when it comes to believing that God's going to bless her. Are you following me? Is that not where we live today? So listen to me. I can speak with authority. That's what God will do in your life. But when it comes time to thinking, he'll do the same thing in mine. It's like, wait a minute now. But I'm telling you, that's what God wants to do. He wants to demonstrate hesed, not just to other people whom you say, oh my God, bless you. He wants to demonstrate unfailing love in your life and show kindness, unfailing compassion to you and to me. And Naomi's shocked. Have you ever been shocked by the goodness of God? Just absolutely blown away. God, how can you be kind to me? And the reason we have trouble thinking God can be kind to us is because, watch me, you know you. Right? Huh? I I know me so well that if you knew me like I know me, you wouldn't like me. Huh? I mean, I talked to my... Preacher friend Bill Jessup yesterday, I said, man, I'm 
folk hadn't done anything but raved about Bill Jessup since he preached while I was in Brazil. They said, we love Bill Jessup. And I said, Bill, my response to them is, that's because y'all don't know him like I do. <laughs> Didn't I say that? No, I'm just joking. Bill is a, Bill's a guy who ought to be loved. <laughs> he really is. He's, he's a great preacher. He's a, he's, a, he's a blessed worker. God has used him. There ain't no way Bill Jessup can do what Bill Jessup has done in this life for the glory of Christ if he wasn't blessed by Yahweh. It's just, a, just the way it is. But now she's shocked at how, at how kind Yahweh is to her. And you know what? Here's the thing. Naomi had been acting like, how can I say this? My editor. I've got to get my editor going again. How do I edit this? She had been acting like, uh, what's the thing? Like a jerk. There you go. Who said that? That's a good word. She'd been acting like a spiritual jerk. I mean, she's mad at God. Her name's no longer Naomi. It's not pleasant. It's bitter. She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter. Because God's been mad, been bad to me. You know, here, here's what the worst thing God can do you after you've been acting like a ding-dong. You know what it is? Most of us think that when you've been acting like a ding-dong, God's going to take you to the woodshed and wear your honey out. Now, sometimes He does that. But you know what He does more often than not when you've been acting like a ding-dong? He blesses you. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 2, for it is the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. So the most severe thing God can do to us after we've been acting like a ding-dong and we're bitter and all mule-lipped, <laughs> hey, there you go. I bet if we loaded a mule up with one pound more than an omer, he would become mule-lipped, you reckon? There's so many experiments we can do with this, huh? Worst thing God can do to you after you've been acting like a spiritual ding-dong is bless your socks off. You know what it'll do to you? Cause you to repent. Because the goodness of God leads men to repentance. Check this out. i got to hurry. I'm running. Look at her. I'm already out of time. i got to go. Here's what else she did. She helped Ruth understand correctly. She had to explain all this to Ruth. Ruth is a new believer. She don't know it all. Thank God she's got a wise mentor who can say, here's what's going on. This is not a coincidence. God's in control. This man is our kinsman redeemer. He's our Goel. He's our closest relative. And Naomi helped Ruth put it all together. And you know everybody needs somebody like that in their life. Man, the closest analogy I can give you is when we have a mission team on the field, these folks that were with us will tell you every morning we have a briefing meeting. All right, this is what we're going to do. This is where we're going to go. This is what we expect. And then we look at God's Word and we go and do it. We come back that evening, we have a debriefing meeting. You know why? Because sometimes experienced missionaries can see things that first-timers don't see. It goes right over the head. And we point it out to them. They say, oh, now I see it. And that's what we need spiritually, not just on the mission field. We need somebody to help us do that now. Hey, things that are happening in your life, they're not just happening at random. The God who controls heaven and earth is at work in your life, controlling things, choreographing steps, because the steps of a righteous man are ordered by God. And so many times we just go and miss it. It's good to have a wise mentor that can help you understand correctly. And you see, that's what she did. What else does she do when I'm done? Not only did she help her understand correctly, and you, man, I wanted to spend my time there, and I'm done out of it. So here we go. Notice what the last thing she did. She encourages Ruth to keep his commandments. Look what she said. Naomi said to Ruth, It is good, my daughter. 
Now, two commandments. Here they are. Leave with this today. Here's what the mentor Naomi encouraged Ruth, the emerging believer, to do. Stay close to the help, girl. You stay close to the help. You stay with His people. Do you know there's a certain amount of protection afforded us when we're close to the people of God that you don't have when you're living in the land of Nod? Huh? Kind of under the umbrella of protection. So a good mentor says, hey, this is what I want you to do. I want you to stay close. Not only stay close to the master, but you stay close to the master's people because I don't know if you can separate those two. Are you with me? So you stay close. So she said, number one, you stay close to the help. Number two, she said, you stick to it until the finish of the harvest. Stick with it. And what does the Bible say that Ruth did? Notice, and again, this isn't brought up anywhere in the text about another harvest, but look what the Bible says. So she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest. But wait a minute. Not just to the end of the barley harvest, but to the end of the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Hey man, she finished the task. She stayed close to the help and she finished the harvest. Dr. John has his alarm set. How many of you have been around John Wilson at 10.02 in the morning? What happens at 10.02? Beep, beep, beep. You know, you know what that reminds him to pray? Luke 2.10. For the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Grace Church, the fields are white. Stay close to the help, and you stick to it until the harvest is finished. And you'll be blessed of Yahweh so much that you'll be shocked at just how good Yahweh really is. Would you stand with me, please? Father in heaven, we have ran a hundred miles an hour through the sacred pages of your word. God, it's so rich. It so supplies our needs. It so satisfies our hunger. Until God, I pray you would cause us to be addicted to it. But God, may we not just come and be content to sit, but God, I pray that every person here today is going to leave with a doggy bag full that's able to minister to those with whom we will come in contact